Greetings everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and Salaam. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend that you each and every one of you. We're tuning into another broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast of the most Gulf Coast of Texas. It is my pride and privilege to be doing so. So thank you listeners, new and old. Most sincerely, if this is your first episode, if this is your 400th episode, thank you for the time that you are spending listening to me. Thank you for those who have supported me, liking, sharing, and subscribing to this information. Thank you for those that uh, will do so in the future. Thank you in advance. You know, I know everyone is on their own schedule, everyone's on their own budget, etc., but thank you. I know uh, when you guys get paid on your payday, when you guys get in, I've already had some messages about that. I know some people just can't afford it. Remember, the information is always free. The information, these episodes, will always be published free. I have already reached the point where I am supported through my listeners comfortably enough that I can survive doing this full-time but still, it is hard to make ends meet, but that's not a reason why to make everything exclusive behind a paywall. So, because of your support and because of your contributions out there, those that are donating a dollar, donating five dollars, donating ten dollars, up to twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sometimes even a hundred dollars. Uh, thank you, you know, to those to those angel patreons right there. Even though I'm. Um, canceled off patreon which makes it even more important that you guys find it in the goodness of your hearts to either set up a uh, monthly donation of a dollar or just whenever you have a couple of dollars burning a hole in your bank account that if you want to um, send me some spare change etc if you are the kind of person that gives spare change to the local homeless person or something without asking anything in return uh, definitely the Beyond Top Secret Texan uh, broadcast would appreciate, you know, that dollar as well. And we bring new episodes, hours of content, you know, much, much longer than a, you know, Hollywood, you know, studio length movie's worth of new content uh, a week when it comes to various broadcast subjects and genres as well as um, the important information that is well-researched, channeled, and vetted through insiders and experience. Um, the Beyond Top Secret Texan is 100% independent. It's 100% funded by you guys. It's a grassroots thing. You know, it's, it's 100% if we don't get this, the, the donations, or we don't get the supporters, or we don't get it. That's how it is. Um, we've been lucky enough to have a slight sponsorship with the Spotify for Podcasters as one of their Spotify for Podcasters, you know, one of their success stories. Uh, I know that's very risky. It's not guaranteed to last the future. Our content is considered very extreme. Our content is considered very intense. Our content is considered very controversial. We've already been kicked off of Patreon twice. We've been kicked off of YouTube once. We've been demonetized before that and then straight up just kicked off of YouTube. Um... We have been kicked off of TikTok and after being demonetized from there, we have been um, kicked off of Patreon twice. We've been uh, basically shadow banned on Twitter, effectively shadow banned on Twitter. 
but that still does not mean it's not and kicked off of Instagram kicked off of Instagram as well and we're not allowed to monetize on Twitter either because uh, you know of our, of our controversial nature and the strikes against us against their community guidelines but we tell the truth there's nothing controversial about the truth there's nothing it, there's nothing um, bad about the truth at all there's nothing criminal about the truth the truth may be ugly and the truth may hurt some people's feelings but I'd much rather I'd much rather be an honest person accused of um, you know a shocking honest person or an honest person accused of being insensitive you know a rude awakening than um, someone who is a gentle liar you know like uh, they always call that the brutal truth or brutally honest and it should be called a brutally liar you know you're a brutal liar uh, I'm not one who pretends or gatekeeps or keeps anything from the public I tell it like it is I tell it you know as it is and I tell us as it's happening and I try to get that across I know this is a, a throwback type media that of radio that of uh, voice logs you know type of presentations and everything um, but I know you guys get it I see the numbers I see the audiences growing I see them internationally growing I see them I see listeners uh, in high numbers in countries where I didn't even know they spoke English, you know, and like in India and Japan and stuff like that. Uh, South American countries, Latin American countries. And I'm really appreciative for it. I'm really, really appreciative for it. But definitely, definitely, um, let's get into it. That's, that's rock and roll. I mean, I'm definitely appreciative of it. I know you guys are supporting and um, you know I'm just going to tell you that, that this is, this is going to be free content free content because of your support so thank you <clears throat> and then I just ask for a tip I just ask for a donation for those who really do appreciate the subject matter and the consistency and productivity of this uh, podcast today is a UFO Monday it's a UFOlogy Monday on the Beyond Top Secret Texan. This is currently Monday, September 4th, 2023. If you're listening to this, no doubt, in the future, or, say, maybe in the past, who knows? This could be a non-linear timeline for you, or some kind of Lovecraftian um, time, um, you know, vision where you're seeing, you're seeing it from deep time. You know, you're hearing this this podcast through deep time, and then the podcast is also hearing you, and then it's coming for you throughout these. <laughs> but anyway, let's get into it. Let's uh, let's get into the ufology episode. This is a this is the second part of the Mexican uh, Mexico's greatest UFOs or the greatest Mexican UFO cases. Um, I say Mexican in reference to the country, Mexico, and I will say that from now on. These are written by um, various sources, ufologists uh, from Latin America. Typically, I've translated them into English, or luckily they were posted in English. But definitely, uh, had a lot of fun researching this, and always very proud to 
speak about Latin American, um, specifically Mexican, um, UFO histories, ufologies, and UFO cases. They are an incredibly overlooked and underestimated element into all of this with the, probably the most impressive, verifiable, hard evidence as well as mass sighting, eyewitness testimony, and personal accounts as, and possibly the, the most active country in the world for UFOs. I would put them within the top country, within the top three, between the United States, um, Chile, Mexico, and Russia. There would be a lot of competition. But then there's a lot of competition all over the world now that I think about it. And I think that that's a, that's a very hard metric. That would be a very, very interesting episode to do next is ranking the countries themselves. I don't think I've ever done that with UFO sightings and, and the the likelihood of seeing a UFO are part of the secret space program. Mexico is definitely in the top five, though. Last episode, we covered, I'd say, about six, maybe, maybe upwards of six of these cases. Let me see. One, two, three... We covered 10. We covered 10 of the old cases. So now we'll be going into these cases. With as much enthusiasm, with as much of an open mind, with as much excitement as we did last time. It's part two of the greatest Mexican UFO cases. The greatest. UFO sightings in the nation of Mexico. This is Mexico City UFOs. <clears throat> the date was Saturday, December 1st, 2018. The place was Mexico City's Zocalo, one of the largest public squares in the world. The nation of Mexico was celebrating the inauguration of their 58th president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. After the swearing-in ceremony before the Mexican Congress, the new president appeared on a makeshift stage in the Zocalo to take part in a purification ceremony before addressing the crowd of tens of thousands of people. Spiritual leaders from various indigenous groups blessed the new president with brushes of herbs and through incantations over incense. The greatest square was no stranger to ceremony as it was once the civic ceremonial center of the Aztec Empire. For hundreds of years, the heart of Mexico City was been a special place of sacred rites and rituals involving great pomp and circumstances. On this Saturday afternoon, not all eyes and camera phones were fixed on the cultural spectacle on stage. Many attendees looked to the sky and were amazed at what they saw they were able to catch on camera. One eyewitness, Angelus Rincon, appeared on a local radio station describing the pomp and circumstance in the sky. Some 40 orbs hovered over the ceremonies and moved across the sky in a linear fashion. Others began calling in, relating what they had seen in the skies over the momentous event. They were small silver and white orbs, hovering, flying in lines, quickly darting away from each other and towards each other. Several camera phones caught the action in the sky, and soon amateur video popped up on the internet. 
No one could explain what was happening over the heart of Mexico City. As seasoned UFO researchers will tell you, what happened on Inauguration Day was nothing new for the metropolis of over 25 million people. Even before the Spanish move arrived, the Aztecs uh, even before the Spanish arrived, the Aztecs recorded seeing strange sightings in the sky over their own capital city, which was located where Mexico City now sits. A glowing object streaking across the sky <clears throat> even made it into the Aztec written records. It alarmed Emperor Montezuma to a great degree, and many priests of the day considered it a bad omen. For more details on the celestial event, please see Mexico. Um, Unexplained episode number 68 titled The Eight Omens of Montezuma and the End of the Aztec Empire. And there's a link. In the modern day, UFO researchers consider Mexico City to be a hotbed of UFO activity. It is because Mexico City has always been a special place, or is it based on the sheer numbers of people? With so many people and so many recording devices available to the Chilangos, our Mexico City residents, it is really no wonder why reports of UFO sightings over the capital city can occur with such regularity. A mass sighting may typically involve tens of thousands of people or more. And this is compared to, say, in North America, where a mass sighting is considered anything with five or more people. To note, one of the most witnessed UFO events in the human history may have happened over the Mexican capital in a time before cell phone cameras, but not before home video. On July 11, 1991, Mexico City was preparing for what was called the Eclipse of the Millennium, a total eclipse of the sun lasting 6 minutes and 45 seconds, which was to occur over the Mexican capital in early afternoon. With people looking to the sky numbering into the millions, according to some estimates, hundreds of thousands of people noticed a shiny metal object hovering in the near distance a few minutes into the eclipse. It was metallic, disc-shaped, and rotated. Cuelamo Aragon, a cameraman for the New York Mexican television network Televisa, who was filming the eclipse, got footage of the object. It was broadcast on Mexican television later that night. After that broadcast, 17 other people came forward with similar video cam, video cam footage recorded from various parts of the city. With so many people looking up to the observe the eclipse, this July 11, 1991 sighting may have been the most observed UFO experience in human history. The eclipse of the millennia sighting happened some 40 years after the first mass sighting over Mexico City, which occurred on March 28, 1950 over the International Airport. The next day, headlines with the newspaper La Prensa proclaimed Plato Valador en la Capital in bold capital letters, taking up more than half the front page. In English, the translates to Flying Saucer in the Capital. The sighting happened in the morning, in the 7 o'clock p.m., or 7 o'clock a.m., and lasted some two hours. Pilots, ground crews, and airline passengers marveled at the gigantic disc that hovered over the airport. Mexico... Authorities contacted the U.S. Embassy and the Americans sent members of the military attache to the airport to observe. But like their Mexican counterparts, they had no explanation for what they were seeing. The Americans would have their own UFO flap over their own capital city two years later as a fleet of flying saucers would appear in the skies of Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1952. As Mexican ufologists are proud to point out, Mexico was first.
Because of the sheer numbers of people on the ground looking up, there is a great diversity in the UFO sightings over Mexico City. UFOs can take strange shapes or can appear as the traditional saucers or orbs. Often they are seen in groups, sometimes classified as flotas or fleets. One of the largest so-called flotas appeared over the site of the first mass sighting in Mexico City at the International Airport. On December 16, 2015, sometime in the mid-afternoon, a fleet of some 100 unidentified flying objects appeared in the airspace above the airport. Some of these objects darted about, but approximately 30 of them formed a V formation and moved slowly over Mexico City at around 3 p.m. A few hours after that, alleged fleet had dissipated, and by 5.30 p.m., witnesses reported a large, lone large white spherical object moving north to south over the airport, gaining in altitude as it flew away. Some thought that this was some sort of mothership. Later that day, a 767 airliner reported flying under the same large spherical object near the Gulf of Mexico. In the great variety of UFO experiences in Mexico City, there exists tales of possible alien contact. One of the first in the the nation of Mexico happened on the morning of August 19, 1965, a few years after the famous Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction in the United States. The setting for the alleged Mexico City close encounter was a vacant lot outside the National Polytechnic Institute. Two brothers, Yeo and Payo, Rodriguez saw a saucer-shaped craft hover over the lot, then it landed after extending its tripodal landing gear. The two brothers claimed that a group of small humanoid beings wearing respirators exited the craft and approached them. A member of this extraterrestrial landing party then placed a small metal object at one of the brothers' feet. Yeo and Peyo took the metal object to the school's laboratory for study, and when the news of the encounter spread, newspapers sent investigative teams to the landing site, taking photos of the visible burn marks. Vegetation was damaged and the vacant lot, and what appeared to be a strange liquid was found on the ground, characterized later as fuel. The tests on the small metal object left behind were inconclusive, or at least not revealed. Some leading Mexican UFO investigators have dismissed the Rodriguez case as a hoax, while others believe in it. The next month of the same year, seemingly in honor of Mexico's 155th anniversary of independence from Spain, another UFO flap happened in the nation's capital. Some 5,000 phone calls flooded police and aviation authorities on September 16, 1965, and people were reporting the same thing. Six luminous objects hovering over the National Cathedral in the ancient Aztec Templo Mayor complex by the Zocalo. Traffic seized up along the Paseo de la Reforma as people got out of their cars to view the spectacle. The objects hovered over the heart of the city for about an hour and perhaps 100,000 people saw them. Eyewitnesses described what they were seeing in both extraterrestrial and spiritual terms. One of the luminous objects will return on September 25th and hover over the city center again before darting away at incredible speeds. Two days later, two of the same objects came back in the early evening hours and this time flew even lower. Witnesses saw them buzz over the Gilded Dome of the Palacio de la Bellas Artes in Alameda Park. Some waiting for a bus described the objects as enormous luminous bodies with intermittent sparkling lights. The sightings of 1965 and in and around Mexico City were so intriguing that newspapers from around the world carried stories about them, including such faraway publications as Kenya's Mombasa Times.
Marla Susana, the bleach blonde talk show host, decided to take in the Mexico City UFO issue on July 11, 2000. On her popular television program, a series of incidents happened in February of that year involving members of Mexico City's police force. On Valentine's Day at 2 o'clock in the morning, two police officers saw an object about 10 meters wide hovering over a soccer field near a school. The object was disc-shaped and projected an array of multicolored lights as it hung suspended over the field. The flashing of the lights intensified as the object began making a whirring sound. One of the patrolmen called in for backup, and soon a dozen or so other policemen bore witness to the strange craft. The UFO disappeared at around 2.20 a.m., and curiously, the policemen's wristwatches were frozen at the time and could not be made to work again. The object reappeared at 2.45 and again at 3.10 in different parts of Mexico City, all logged in officially by the police officials. Two different patrolmen tied taking photos of the object, but not a single photo developed properly. All gave sworn testimony in interviews. The same force apparently operating on the police officers' watches shut down their camera equipment. As one of the largest cities in the world, Mexico City has been for many years a hotbed of UFO activity with many eyes towards the sky and an overabundance of camera equipment in the hands of common citizens. UFO skeptics and serious researchers alike can look forward to ample material to sift through the foreseeable future. That's the end of that article. And it just, it blows my mind that no one talks about this in America or in the English-speaking world, either Australia or England. Because if a city with 25 million people existed in an English-speaking part of the world that had as many mass sightings with as typically, on average, 10,000 or more people seeing them and on documented evidence where people are intentionally looking into the sky with news cameras, uh, military officials, government officials all seeing it as well, it being almost undeniable at this point, like absurdly undeniable with how much evidence it is, and even the American military uh, being called to see it as well, such as the airport sightings or the uh, Independence Day sightings of Mexico, then um, there would be no debate. UFOs would just, there would be absolutely no debate about alien existence or UFOs uh, with only debate about what their true nature is at that or what the government's responsibilities are, our true extent of knowledge is. But not, not if they're real or not. There would be no disbelievers in it. If that happened over New York City, which it does happen over New York City, by the way, which it does. If it happened over L.A. with as much frequency. You couldn't keep it secret. But yet, because they have the English-speaking world, with all its power and influence to itself you know it's like it to itself it's its own god and what it what it denies it refuses to believe even if we are the laughing stocks and fools of the complete globe and world the international idiots next article secret ufo bases in mexico 
The internet was abuzz in the summer of 2016 with the talk of secret extraterrestrial base in the middle of the Gulf of California between the Baja California Peninsula and the Mexican mainland. A researcher stumbled upon strange geometric patterns when looking at Google Maps and his photos and commentaries took on a life of their own as such things on the internet are prone to do. An idea of alien bases at the bottom of the sea went viral and soon the story was picked up by publications as far away as the UK and Australia. Just four years prior to this discovery, the web was humming for the similar story about an alien base off the coast of Malibu, California, and perhaps the internet hive mind was therefore open to the Mexican version. The strange geometric formation stretched over 11 miles in the deepest part of the Gulf. American UFO researcher Scott Waring, publisher of UFO Sightings Daily, was quoted as saying, It's so huge, there's no wonder we hear so many UFO sightings over Mexico. Indeed, alleged extraterrestrial bases have been reported throughout Mexico, a base both off the coast and inland underground. These supposed bases have gotten a lot of attention from Mexican UFO researchers and those outside the country. Pat, part urban legend and part UFO lore and part unexplained strangeness, ideas of alien bases throughout Mexico have been around for years. The stories, testimonies, and investigations could fill several volumes, but we will hit the highlights here. Many UFO researchers believe that the logical place for alien bases on Earth would be underwater. In the past few decades, the phenomenon of aquatic UFOs has entered the extraterrestrial theory literature as there have been many sightings of alleged craft entering or exiting large bodies of water. As over 90% of the oceans have not been explored, underwater UFO bases would make sense and could hide enormous fleets of alien craft. In addition to the supposed base found on Google Maps at the bottom of the Gulf of California, some Mexican researchers have theorized that an alien base exists somewhere on the coast of Baja California in the Pacific, near the Playas de Tijuana, just a hundred or fifty miles or so south of the base discovered on the coast of Malibu. While no one has seen anything on the ocean floor in any sort of mapping programming, Researchers believe that the base is nearby just because of the large number of UFOs and other strange anomalies in and around the northern part of the Mexican state of Baja, California. The most famous of these alleged underwater extraterrestrial bases exists off the coast of Cuerdad Madero, a medium-sized city in the extreme southern part of the Mexican state of Tamaulipas on the Gulf of Mexico, just south of Texas. This alien base has a name, Amupac and has been visited by at least one person, a local man named Juan Carlos Ramon Lopez Diaz. Diaz is the head of a group called the Association for Scientific UFO Investigation of Tamaulipas, an organization of a few dozen members which investigates UFO phenomenon in northeastern Mexico. Lopez states the association is made up of professionals. The reports you receive are taken seriously until a mental profile is made. Since there are people with psychological problems who claim to have had contacts with extraterrestrials, Lopez claims to have visited Amupec through astral projection after days of mental and physical preparation. He alleges that he traveled in a ball of light a few kilometers off the coast, and when he plunged into the ocean, three beings were waiting for him to guide him through the city. The base was made of glass and crystalline structures. Light was everywhere, but it was not the light of the sun because the city was at the bottom of the sea. The base was staffed by tall blonde beings, commonly referred to as the Nordics in UFO lore, and everyone Lopez encountered on his trip were scientists and very cold in demeanor. He could not give exact coordinates of his base, but he did say in an interview with the newspaper El Sol del Tampico 
that the aliens are here to study humans, specifically how we react to situations emotionally. According to Lopez, there is also a great quantity in the area of a certain white powder derived from gold and platinum that the off-world visitors routinely mine. The reason why this area of Mexico has not been hit by hurricanes in the past 60 years is also attributed to the aliens who are protecting the coast until their work is finished. And the newspaper interviewed Lopez also mentioned that the same species of extraterrestrials also operates a series of secret bases on land. <clears throat> Whether he knew it or not, many of the places he mentioned have also been referenced by others. Secret terrestrials of UFO bases are usually associated with more remote areas and very few are located near large urban centers. Prominent Mexican UFO researcher Johanan Diaz Vargas claims that three conditions exist indicating proximity to a secret extraterrestrial base. Many UFO sightings in the area, strange creatures spotted nearby, and legends of oral traditions in the area including something paranormal going on in the mountain. Many have linked UFO activity with Mexico's many volcanoes, and some say that the alien races harness the geological energy of the volcanoes to power their hidden cities as well as their flying crafts. For more on the connections to volcanoes and the UFOs in Mexico, please see Mexico Unexplained as another link. Strangely enough, many of the supposed alien bases are in and around volcanic geological formations which look like devil's towers as seen in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. One of the mysterious monoliths is the Peña de Bernal, just outside the town of San Sebastián Bernal in the Mexican state of Cuerretira. The monolith forms natural pyramids and has been a point of curiosity ever since before the Spanish conquests. It is also a noted UFO hotspot in Mexico with strange craft and mysterious lights in the sky. According to the locals, there is a city of little people inside the massive rock which leads some researchers to believe that Peña de Bernal may be a base for the greys so commonly found in the UFO research. Another location of the possible extraterrestrial base is inside another volcanic plug called Piedra de la Zumata, located near the town of Huasca in the Mexican state of Hildago, just an hour and a half north of Mexico City. The area is pretty much an untouched wilderness complete with old-growth forests and plenty of wildlife. The high strangeness at Zumata began in the formal written record in 1650 with a curious tale of a shepherd that made it to the documents of the Spanish Inquisition. On June 24th of that year, the man was tending his flock on the side of the mountain when he stumbled upon a cave. He walked into the cave and when he was deep inside, everything started to take on a grayish color. The shepherd got out and around and lost his way inside the mountain and found himself inside an expansive valley with strange animals, such as bulls with one horn. The light was different, but there was a city in the valley that shimmered in gold. What seemed like an hour in the mountain was actually one year outside the mountain. The shepherd was met by officials of the Holy Inquisition soon after telling a story to the locals. The Inquisition proclaimed him possessed by the devil and executed him. Since 1650, there have been other stories around Piedra de la Zamata of the hidden city inside the rock are strange orbs spotted in the sky and strange animals turning up dead in the surrounding areas, some mutilated, some without their blood. Another possible alien base exists in the northern suburbs of Mexico City, and yet another volcanic outcrop called Cerro de la Chicuahete. The hill is studied with radio are studded with radio and television antennas and rumors of secret alien bases and US military bases at the site began to surface in the mid 1990s when people living nearby complained of muffled sounds of heavy machinery 
being used late into the night and early mornings. Some attributed the noise to some sort of underground operation happening inside the Little Mountain, and the rumors and noises have persisted ever since. Some allege that the towers on the hill have multiple uses and that their transmissions are more extraterrestrial than earthly. Cerro de Chacajita does have an interesting history. The site was very important to pre-Hispanic peoples. The stone from the massive pyramid at the center of the Aztec capital city, known as the Templo de Mayer, came from the little mountain which was on the northern shore of Lake Texcoco at the time. The Aztecs believed that the stone from the mountain had great power, and so they used it in the most important building projects. The topic of potential extraterrestrial bases in Mexico is very extensive, and there is a lot more to investigate. Perhaps by following the advice of Mexican UFO investigators Johanan Diaz Vargas, more possible bases may be located. But without much physical evidence, most of what we now have is open to speculation and wild interpretation. End of article. The Stone UFOs and the Maya Breakaway Civilization The date was November 26, 1985. The space shuttle Atlantis lifted off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida carrying a crew of seven piloted by shuttle veteran Commander Brewster Shaw. Flying on this mission was Dr. Rodolfo Neravella. His role formerly classified as payload specialist number two. The 33-year-old Neri Vela, who earned his doctorate degree in electromagnetic radiation from the University of Birmingham in 1979, was cheered on by millions of his fellow countrymen on that, could be, on that cold November day. The boy from the medium-sized city of Chilpancingo de las Bravo in the Mexican state of Guerrero had earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical and electrical engineering from Mexico's largest university, UNAM and had continued the studies in England where he earned a master's degree in science with an emphasis in telecommunications technology from the University of Essex and then on to his doctorate at Birmingham. After spending a few years teaching, researching, and publishing, Dr. Neri Vela was approached by NASA and as a part of the crew of the second mission of the Na Atlantis. He became the first Mexican in space. While on board the shuttle, he conducted experiments having to do with electromagnetism and radiation. He oversaw the deploying of the Morales Sat-2, a communication satellite named in honor of a hero of the Mexican War of Independence, Jose Maria Morales. Dr. Nerat Vela is currently an engineering professor at his alma mater, UNAM, and his flight suit from the shuttle missions is proudly on display at the Museum of Technology in Mexico City. While Dr. Neri Vela's accomplishments are numerous, some, of the, some cast doubts on his biggest claim to fame, that he was the first Mexican in space. There was those who subscribed to the theory that a breakaway civilization existed and believed that Mexicans had been in outer space for thousands of years, starting with the Olmecs and more importantly, the Maya, whose off-world population is said to be 40 million or more. Before we really get into this, I must remind listeners and viewers of Anthony Taylor's introduction of the beginning of each Mexico Unexplained episode, and there's a link. This series presents information on theory. The podcast's purpose suggests that some possible explanations, but not necessarily the ones to the subjects we will examine, the ideas presented in the show. Um, what is a breakaway civilization? In the mid to late 1990s, the idea of breakaway civilizations existed alongside one on Earth we all know of and live and begin to crop up on the Internet. At UFO conferences and in books and articles having to do with outer space and alien contact. 
Since then, the idea has been fleshed out and has grown incredibly complex to include a tie-in with ancient Mexico. The original idea of breakaway civilizations, as theorized by early writers in the late 1990s, such as American author and researcher Richard Dolan, has its starting point on the alleged flying saucer crash outside of Roswell, New Mexico in July of 1947. From the recovered wreckage, the U.S. military is able to back-engineer the alien technology and create interstellar craft of their own. A fleet of flying saucers under the command of the U.S. military became what is known by the theorists as the Secret Space Program. During the 1950s, there was an intense push to colonize the solar system, and many thousands of people became involved as people were needed to populate bases on the moon, asteroids, and the planets. Space stations throughout the solar system were built, and eventually humans made contact with beings of other races from other solar systems and galaxies. This was all being kept secret, but what has been termed recently as the Deep State, or alternatively called by some research as the Cabal or even the Illuminati. NASA and other space programs worldwide are fronts are disinformation agencies to distract the public from what is really going on in space. While considered even by some of the most hardcore UFO and paranormal researchers as a fringe conspiracy theory, the authors, podcasters, and other researchers who describe the ideas of the breakaway civilization and a secret space program cite various types of evidence to back up their claims. Among these pieces of evidence include testimony from alleged whistleblowers from various government agencies, anomalous and anomalies seen in official space agency photos of places like Mars and the Moon, fragments of documents, testimonies of supposed abductees, good hunches, and even channeling. The breakaway civilization explains many mysterious things such as the unaccounted for Pentagon money, rumors of black budgets, and even the numbers of missing children. In the early days of breakaway civilization theory, some people believe that the human off-world presence began almost 10 years before the Roswell incident in Nazi Germany, when Hitler built a group of UFOs later termed the Dark Fleet, which had its base in sections of Antarctica, now called New Schwabenland. As the idea of the breakaway civilization became more popular, people started to come forward alleging that they had more information with what the story had become more complex. What groups did the secret branches of the U.S. government and military have contact with in outer space? Rumors abound that even President Eisenhower had meetings with members of alien races. Things get repeated on the internet, and people theorize about certain parts of the theories, and new supposed whistleblowers come forward from times, uh, time uh, with pieces of old documents making light or making it to the light of day. About a year or so ago, the supposed end of the Maya calendar in 2012, there was, take, there was talk on the internet about how the ancient Maya abandoned their cities and took to the stars after either making contact with an alien race or reuniting with the Space Brothers from the star cluster called the Pleiades. The ancient astronaut-Maya connection has been around at least since the 1960s. But the ancient Maya as part of a breakaway civilization that is working alongside or against secret elements of the U.S. military or the Illuminati is a relatively new twist. The stage was set for the Maya in space by a series of YouTube videos which debuted in 2011 in which a supposed Maya elder talked about the Pleiades being the original home of the Maya and how the old ones would return to the earth to help us reach a higher level of consciousness. The Elder explained that the star system revolved around its central sun every 52 years, which corresponds to the Maya calendar round. The calendar also reaches back into the billions of years, the Elder said, because the Maya had a very long history, with most of it not spent on Earth. 
There were many interesting theories floating around regarding what would happen at the end of the Maya calendar cycle in 2012, and thus the breakaway civilization theorists had more stuff to work with. By 2014, a new alleged insider emerged, an American named Corey Good, who started communicating with American UFO and paranormal researcher David Wilcock. Good has claimed that ever since the age of six, he has been abducted by government operatives of the secret space program and believes that he has been taken aboard alien crafts and has been to secret space program bases in our solar system to work on various projects for the government. Good's handler, Arliasson, in this off-world experiences is a man known to him as Lieutenant Colonel Gonzalez. It was Gonzalez who reintroduced him to a race of breakaway civilization Maya who number into the tens of millions and have combined their ancient facility for working in stone with alien technologies. The breakaway civilization of the Maya travel around in flying saucers made of highly polished stone that use stone implements such as their ancestors on Earth did. In a long dissertation released to the public on David Wilcock's website in January of 2018, Good goes into great de detail about the spacefaring Maya and its interactions with them through the man known only as Gonzalez. In his dissertation, Good described being on the Maya spacecraft and giving some interesting details, even describing the stone control panels as floating instead of being attached to the ship, and being covered in a combination of ancient Mayan hieroglyphs and flashing lights. The Maya are considered healers among the members of the supposed Super Federation, which vaguely resembles the Star Trek universe and includes some 60 alien races from various star systems. This group is considered the good guys who occasionally battle it out with the Draco Empire, which is led by a race of tall, whitish-colored reptilians. In the January 2018 document, Good describes an encounter between the group of the Maya and a high-level prisoner from the Draco Empire, which ended with many Mayan dead along with the reptilian prisoner as well. The Maya communicated the events to Good telepathically. Good was then taken to a Space Federation base near the planet Jupiter and met with a man named Mika, who was also a descendant from a group of people who left ancient Mexico thousands of years ago. Miko was not Maya, but had a smaller Olmec contingent which had barely survived fighting off the evil Draco Empire on their own post-Earth planet. This may be the only reference yet of Olmecs in space, and nothing is given as to their technology or other achievements while away from Earth. Although much of the information about this topic has come out of the United States, there are very few UFO and paranormal investigators. Before the detailed document of Corey Good or document as speaking about it. Mexican UFO investigator Antonio Cisneros made a series of videos and blog posts about the off-world Maya. Cisneros, who has cultivated quite a following in Mexico, has tied recent UFO activity with Mexico volcanoes to the Maya breakaway civilization and claims the Maya not only have bases in other star systems, but also have secret underground facilities throughout Mexico. As caverns were sacred to the ancient Maya, it is only logical that part of the civilization went underground. The researcher affirms, according to Cisneros, the Maya are returning to help with the world's problems and walk among us as regular humans who have penetrated such fields as science and medicine to expose modern-day humanity to their advanced forms of technology. They will help us with everything from curing diseases to getting rid of the Pacific Ocean's garbage island, he writes. Most of the UFOs seen over Mexico are the Maya returning, and Cisneros agrees with Good on two points, that their spacecraft are not made of metal but of polished stone, and that the Maya are healers. It's difficult to determine who is corroborating whom, but it appears that Antonio Cisneros brought forth his theories with the off-world Maya before Corey Good claimed to have direct experience with them. 
The ancient Maya have inspired wonder and awe ever since their ruins were discovered by outsiders. Many people across the years have struggled to understand their achievements, how their civilization developed to such an advanced level, and why such a complex society disappeared. Theories are varied and sometimes bizarre. Oftentimes, archaeological theories are collapsed or rooted in contemporary versions of doomsdays. There is a lot of talk these days from major scientists such as Stephen Hawking about abandoning the Earth to save the planet. Perhaps this is being projected onto the Maya and maybe projected onto the breakaway civilization theory, reflecting that some people think humans should do in the future. Travel to the stars. One thing is certain, the more and more people talk about UFOs and the topic of disclosure, the more and more we will hear about the daring group of Maya who took to the stars to abandon the suffering of Earth. End of article. The UFO encounter at Ahujesco, the case of Carlos Diaz. On January 26, 2021, episode of one of Mexico's most watched YouTube paranormal shows called Insolita Experiencia, or Unusual Experiences, in English, host Johanan Diaz Vargas interviewed notable Mexican UFO experiencer Victor Ramirez. Ramirez spoke of his encounter with otherworldly phenomenon dating back to 1986 when he came into contact with glowing orbs and unexplained lights in and around Mexico City. Halfway through the interview, Ramirez told the host of an incident that happened in 1990s in a wilderness area southwest of Mexico City called Ciro de Jesco, where he was hiking in the pine forest of the mountains with friends. Ramirez became separated from them and it became dark. Overhead, a square-shaped white-colored object appeared, hovering and making no noise. Eager to reunite with his compadres, he was making his way through the ravine when he stumbled and dropped his lantern. The light went out for a few seconds, and when Ramirez looked up, he saw something that chilled him to the core. Standing about 20 feet from him was a creature. It appeared to be a gray, a typical alien reporting thousands of encounters around the world. Short, big head, skinny body, almond-shaped eyes, no mouth, spindly arms, and legs. But this creature was completely white. Their eyes locked and then the creature took off into the woods. Ramirez mentioned that it fled faster than any animal and never saw the creature again, even though he was returned to the area many times. In this interview, the host and guest spoke briefly about the Ciro de Jujusca, or Ajusca being a hotspot of sorts for paranormal activity. Victor Ramirez even briefly mentioned Carlos Diaz, who had many alleged encounters with aliens or extraterrestrials in this area. The case of Carlos Diaz is one of the most famous UFO contact stories in all of Mexico. Before we get into the case, let's examine the setting, the Ciro de Jesusco. The mountain is an old volcanic dome and is part of a small mountain chain called Sierra de Jesusco Chichinuitzen. Jesusco is located in the Distrito Federal of Greater Mexico City, Mexico's national federal district, and takes up about half the total area of the district. Many find it amazing that such an unspoiled wilderness of pine, oak, and fir forest could be so close to one of the world's largest cities. The area has been a special place since time immemorial. The name of Juska derives from an old Nahuatl di- dialect and originally meant forest of waters, or some linguists believe what the waters derived. The mountain has many springs, and those springs and other small streams form the headwaters of a few major Mexican rivers. 
The first people believed to have lived on or around the Hydruska were the Tapanica. Where the Spanish arrived in the area, they found ruins with artifacts on top of Hydruska and a small pyramid near its base. A curious artifact found on the mountain, a large ancient lidded box made of basalt, is nicknamed El Cortilo and is now housed at the Santo Tomas Ajusca Church. El Cuatillo. Cuatillo. Archaeologists believe the stone box is Tepetlacali, a type of stone chest used by priests and nobles throughout ancient Mexico. Although it has been compared to the famous artifact in the Indiana Jones movie, there is no Ark of the Covenant, although it is very mysterious. The Ajusco Wilderness is home to many wild animals. Among them is the very rare Taparingo, known as the Zatuchi to the Aztecs, a bunny rabbit as small as a mouse. The Carlos Diaz case began as Ajusca on a January morning in 1981. Diaz was a newspaper photographer and he was meeting a reporter at a parking lot at an overlook on Ajusca to work on a story. Before the reporter arrived, Diaz noticed an orange glow coming from the valley below and assumed it was a forest fire. The light grew more intense, though, and soon the source revealed itself when a large orange-colored UFO appeared in front of this car. Being a good photographer, Diaz grabbed a camera and started taking pictures of the strange craft. As the object got closer, the car began to shake. Diaz got out of the car and took a few more photographs before the UFO shot up into the sky in a vertical trajectory. Diaz told very few people about what got about got the photos developed in private. He knew that others had reported strange lights in the sky over Ajusco for many years, and because he hoped to get more photos, Diaz kept returning to the same parking lot for many weeks afterwards. After seeing nothing, he almost gave up until a second encounter finally happened on March 23, 1981. Hiking in the woods near a parking lot, Diaz spotted a UFO emitting an orange glow hovering over a small clearing. The photographer positioned himself behind a small rock outcrop to observe without drawing attention to himself. In a later interview, he would describe the craft as being dome-shaped with a smooth ring in its center. The outside was covered in several half-spheres, each about three feet in diameter. Although Diaz thought he was alone, he felt a hand reach out and grab his shoulder from behind. He immediately fainted, and when he woke up, it was dark and the mysterious craft had vanished. Diaz noticed that although the surrounding forest was wet from a rainstorm, his clothes were not even slightly damp. He returned to the parking lot, and his car was not the only one on the lot. Or his, his car was, yeah, not the only one on the lot. From the car parked in front of his, a humanoid emerged. Diaz's description of the entity would classify the being as a quote-unquote nerd Nordic in UFO lore. He was taller than the average human and very blonde with pale skin and bright blue eyes. The being told Diaz that he wanted to know more about what had happened to him. He needed to return at noon the next day to the same forest clearing where he saw the UFO. Diaz returned as instructed and approached the blonde being in the clearing who was sitting peacefully in the grass. The Nordic explained that he was the one who grabbed Diaz by the shoulder the day before and they had taken him aboard the glowing orange craft. The blonde extraterrestrial explained to the man that he would slowly recover his memories over the event in time and not to be alarmed. He was also told Diaz that this would be the first of many visits. As the blonde being had foretold, Diaz's memory of the event slowly came back to him, bit by bit, over the course of the next few months. Diaz remembered the craft hovering over him and walked towards it to touch it. His hands went through it and his body seemed to merge with its yellow light. The next thing he remembers is seeing the craft park on a platform in the middle of a cave. 
Here are Diaz's own words from an interview some 10 years later. It was full of stalagmites, some of which were carved into what appeared to be Mayan sculptures. I saw many people in the cave, some of whom waved to me, and in a state of shock, I waved back. He then went to a smaller cave, and in that cave were smaller, egg-shaped orbs of light. Diaz was invited to step into one, and when he did, he felt like he was back in the forest, but he really wasn't. He experienced all the sensations of being there, but he never left the cave. The Nordic who originally met him in the clearing explained to Diaz that these were vessels to explore different places remotely, and they also served as sensory encyclopedias to store information on different locations. After his experience with the orbs, Diaz returned to a larger cave, boarded the large orange craft, and returned to the clearing in the forest. According to Diaz, this was the first of dozens of encounters over as many years with the blonde beings and their exotic technologies and crafts. He would use the orbs in the cave many times to experience many different earth environments from the Arctic wilderness to African jungles. Diaz kept most of this to himself for almost 10 years until the story caught the attention of Jaime Massan, the grandfather of Mexican UFO research. What impressed Massan the most were Diaz's photographs. The objects depicted in the pictures were very unusual with beautiful mixes of yellow and orange colors. This soon became its own separate category of UFOs now known as the plasma crafts. Skeptics encountered that since Diaz was a professional photographer with his own darkroom in his home, that he would have doctored the photographs like an expert and was familiar with all the tricks of light used to create such a convincing hoax. One of these experts was Dr. quote-unquote experts was Dr. Victor Casadilla, a professor at the Polytechnic Institute of the University of Mexico. He stated, We were shocked to discover that the spectrum of light from the object was unlike anything we have ever seen. It broke all previous parameters and didn't match anything in our files. The light was extraordinarily intense. There was no evidence of superimposition or of hoaxing. We estimate the object to be around 30 to 50 meters in diameter. Repeat, there was no evidence of superimposition or hoaxing. And this is from Dr. Victor Quesadilla, a professor at the, Quesada, a professor at the Polytechnic Institute of the University of Mexico. UFO researcher Jaime Massan then took the photos of Dr. Robert Nathan of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a famous UFO skeptic and evidence debunker. Nathan could not find anything anomalous with the photos and could not see where they were faked. The Carlos Diaz case also caught the attention of Dr. John Mack, professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Mack has worked with many UFO abductees and is convinced that Carlos Diaz is the real deal. Mack wrote his, this about Diaz in his book, Passport to the Cosmos. <clears throat> Out of all the experiences I have worked with, it is Carlos Diaz who seems to have developed the richest understanding of the interconnected web of nature. Diaz's experiences of connecting with living creatures is so intense that he seems literally to become the thing he is describing. Diaz believes he was chosen to be a messenger from the extraterrestrials to warn humans about the destruction of the natural world. He claims that the beings he has been meeting with have been observing our civilization for thousands of years and wish us to take more active roles in preserving our planet. As part of this extraterrestrial observation, many of the so-called Nordics have been living among humans for untold generations and have even intermarried with them. These people here are not only to observe us, but to warn us. Diaz claims because their own past was similar to the Earth's current perilous situation. Skeptics of the Carlos Diaz case are quick to point out that Diaz never mentions that there is visitors are coming from or even after repeat contacts with them has yet to provide a single photo of one of these extraterrestrials are interesting blonde beings. 
That's the end of the article. At least what's worth reading. The 1950 UFO crash at El Indio. Repeat, the 1950 UFO crash at El Indio. In Saltillo, a capital of Mexican state of Coahuila, a newspaper, Zocalo, had this bold headline in its May 1st, 2013 edition. Translated into English, UFOs appear in the skies of Piedras Negras and surroundings. According to the article, the lights in the sky first appeared near the town of Jimenez, just up the Rio Grande from the city of Piedras Negras, which is situated across the river from Eagle Pass, Texas. At around 9.30 p.m. on Tuesday, April 50th, or, sorry, April 30th, 2013, several triangular-shaped objects flew overhead at rapid speed, heading south along the river. The small municipal airport at Piedras Negras shuts down daily at 7 p.m., and there was no logged airplane flights coming in or out of the airport at the time of the sighting. Dozens of eyewitnesses in Piedras Negras saw the triangular crafts flying south, and by 10 o'clock, the residents of the town of Guerrero spotted the strange aerial vehicles as well. All who witnessed these bizarre vehicles in the sky said they were like no aircraft they had ever seen, and they moved way too fast to be conventional airplanes. The Zocalo article stated that this was not the first time that the strange objects had appeared over the specific section of the Rio Grande Valley in Coahuila. In 2010, similar objects were seen in the Piedras Negras area. A brief, a brief survey of the internet shows possible UFO activity in this area as recently as April 2020. One of the earliest UFO incidents in all of Mexico allegedly took place in the area in December 1950. This was during what ufologists call the golden age of flying saucers, as many eyewitnesses reported sightings of flying metallic discs in the sky over the United States. Some of the notable American sightings during the golden age included the Kenneth Arnold UFO incident near Mount Rainier, Washington in June of 1947, the flying saucer crash at Roswell, New Mexico a few weeks later, and the multiple sightings of UFOs around Washington, D.C. in July of 1952. A mere footnote to these more famous counters in the U.S. is the side of the border during this time is a more obscure event right across the Rio Grande on the Mexican side just south of South, uh, south of Piedras Negras n- near the small town of Guerrero. To the UFO researcher, this case is known as the Crash at El Indio, named for a Texas town just across the river from Guerrero. This small Mexican UFO incident involves secret U.S. government documents, a possible international cover-up, and a thorough investigation in the early 1990s that sought to debunk the whole story. The 1950 El Indio saucer crash first came on the radar for American UFO researchers in December of 1984 when a strange package arrived at the doorstep of a Hollywood film producer named Jamie Shandera. The parcel postmarked, postmarked Albuquerque, New Mexico, contained an undeveloped roll of 35mm film. Shandera developed the film and found that it contained eight pages of government documents that were classified two levels above top secret. This story is famous in the UFO research community, and the papers are now known as the Majestic 12 or MJ-12 documents. These papers were dated November 18, 1952, and are also known as the Eisenhower Briefing, prepared by the outgoing Truman Administration for the newly elected American President Dwight D. Eisenhower. 
The document describes the creation of the Majestic 12 group, comprised of six military and six civilian members, formed with a specific task to oversee and investigate the entirety of the UFO phenomenon. The Eisenhower briefing mentioned many details of the Roswell incident of July 1947, but researchers were surprised to see the document touch upon a previously unheard of but similar event that occurred much farther south from Roswell across the Rio Grande and into Mexico. Here is what the MJ-12 document had to say about this incident in relation to Roswell. On the 6th of December 1950, a second object, probably of similar origin, impacted the Earth at high speed in El Indio Guerrero area of the Texas-Mexico border after following a long trajectory through the atmosphere. By the time a search team arrived, which remained at the object that had been almost totally incinerated, such material as could be recovered was transported to the ACE Atomic Energy Commission facility at Sandia, New Mexico for further study. Sandia, New Mexico referred to Sandia National Laboratories of Kirtland Air Force Base, then located on the southern edge of Albuquerque. Presumably, the wreckage was taken there for further study by the military, and the MJ-12 document most likely came out of the same facility as the Albuquerque postmark on Chandera's package would corroborate. Over the years, other pieces allegedly report of the MJ-12 documents have surfaced. In fact, there are now hundreds of pages of supposedly classified materials that have come to light tied to the Majestic 12 project. The FBI and the Air Force, along with many ufologists and debunkers, have declared these documents to be fakes and the whole MJ-12 project an elaborate hoax. Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist who is considered to be the grandfathers of serious UFO researchers, agrees that some of the documents associated with MJ-12 that have come out of the past 30 years have been fakes and may have been created or intentionally to muddy the waters of UFO research. Friedman believed that the Eisenhower briefings of 1952, which mentioned the El Indio UFO crash, are indeed real, though. On March 1990, two men sought to prove or disprove what was revealed in this supposed top secret evidence. Journalist and editor of the MUFON UFO journal, Dennis Stacy, etc., etc. They ultimately found a few interesting pieces of information that seemed to support what was mentioned in the 1952 Eisenhower briefings regarding the Mexican crash. On the very day of the El Indio incident, December 6, 1950, the United States seemed to be dealing with its own spat of UFO sightings. According to the classified document prepared for the Secretary of Defense found in the National Archives, the U.S. was on high alert that very same day on December. Some 40 unidentified flying objects flying at high speed at 32,000 feet appeared on the skies over the northeastern United States at 10.30 in the morning on December 6, 1950. According to the six-page memo, there was no reason to believe that the aircraft were friendly. The Air Force scrambled interceptors, and by 11.04, the situation was diffused before a national emergency was declared. President Trump would later write about this incident in his memoirs published in 1979. Did this unprecedented UFO event have something to do with what happened sometime later that day, just across the border? Dennis Stacy and Tom Dooley... ...conducted a first on... site investigation meeting a local resident Rosendo Flores Rosendo Flores not only remembered the crash he was an eyewitness to it Flores told the researchers that he'd been working on with his family as north, land north of town in the mid-afternoon he saw a ball of fire fall from the sky somewhere between this location and the Rio Grande 
and the lands of an adjoining ranch belonging to the Gregos family. The crash caused a brush fire. A few days later, a military contingent came down from Piedras Negras and secured the area. Later, Flores saw a truck hauling something away. When asked if any Americans were involved with the takeaway of the wreckage, Flores said he couldn't tell. Rumors about the incident swirled around the area, but no one officially told the locals anything. Acting on Flores' information, Stacy and Dooley tried to track down other eyewitnesses, but everyone Flores told them about was either long since dead or no longer living in the city. The researchers returned to the United States to regroup. They made another trip down later in 1990, discovering holes on land in the areas suggested by the rancher to have been the site of the crash, a gigantic hole in the general vicinity. And connected it to what is known in the UFO community as a UFO crash that happened 130 miles south of Guerrero at a place called Rio Sabinas on the July of 1948. The locals call this the Tomato Man incident because photos supposedly existed of a charred body of an extraterrestrial being amid smoldering flying saucer wreckage. The photos were, sadly enough, of a human accident victim, though, that had died tragically in a roadside car crash, according to official authorities. According to authorities, officially. In 1994, Stacy Dooley returned to the Gregos Ranch outside of Guerrero and two other investigators to put the LNDO crash story to rest again. But it still remains one of the more curious references to a UFO crash in the history books. There were other witnesses to the crash on the American side as well. Searching for UFOs by Dr by Dylan H. Richards and Janet I. Sterling. The authors write, In December 1950, a woman visiting a dude ranch in Texas wrote to her husband about a most unusual incident. She and the other guests and ranch workers had observed what seemed to be an airplane in distress flying overhead. They thought it might have come down over the Mexican-American border. The next day, several of the ranch cowboys rode out to see if they could find something or anyone who needed help. They found wreckage, but didn't look like any airplane that they had ever seen. There were bodies strewn about, badly burned. The cowboy said it looked as though the craft had been piloted by children. So what really happened on December 6, 1950, outside this small Mexican town right across the border? Ultimately, we may never know the truth about the little-known El Indio UFO incident. End of article. Marla, a Mexican contactee. How a mother of ten became Mexico's most celebrated contactee. The year is 1972. Millions of Mexicans were riveted to their television sets. A Mexico City talk show host is interviewing a woman known only as Marla. She described herself as a housewife and a mother of ten children who worked part-time at a publishing house. The seemingly ordinary woman, whose real name was Maria de Socorro Perez, claimed to have been in contact with extraterrestrial beings. Marla told the host that this begins, or the beings began contacting her four years before. In 1968, a year of tumultuous events in Mexico and throughout the world, 
The hosts of the show asked questions with a mix of disbelief and fear. Nothing like this had ever been broadcast on Mexican television before, and the show was an uncharted territory, as well as a ratings success. After the airing of the talk show, Marla became somewhat of a celebrity in the small Mexican UFO and paranormal communities, as well as the country at large. Her interviews appeared in the fringe pulp magazines, and many Mexicans were intrigued by Marla's stories of supposed alien contact. One of these magazines was called Contacto de OVNI, or UFO Contact in English, published and edited by Mexico's pioneering female UFO researcher, Vicetta Rodriguez. Rodriguez featured the contactee in many of her magazines, as Marla had many encounters and many messages that the visitors wanted to relay to humanity. Marla's story is an interesting one. In 1968, a casual acquaintance of Marla's had just returned from a trip through Tibet in northern India. This friend had been in contact with Tibetan lamas in exile in India who asked him if he knew anyone who would help in a great cause. The elevation of the consciousness of humanity to a higher level. Marla listened to her friend and was curious. She told him she would like to participate in some capacity. The friend told her that someone would contact her soon about her being part of this, but she would not know when or would not know how. Marla went about her daily life and just expected the unexpected. One day in a supermarket parking lot, a man appeared at the side of her car while she was loading her groceries. In an article in Contacto, Avni Marla described the man as being well-dressed in contemporary clothing. He was a medium height and had a muscular build. He was Caucasian in appearance, having short-cropped blonde hair and grayish-blue eyes. When he spoke to her, his Spanish was flawless and his accent was pure Mexican. She knew at once this was the meeting she was destined to have. She asked the strange blonde man where he was from because even though he looked like a gringo, his Spanish was perfect. The man avoided the question somewhat at first, but then told Marla that he wasn't from planet Earth. In subsequent interviews, Marla said that she thought the man was from either Mars or Venus. That might seem strange today, but back in the 1950s and 1960s, many people believed that these planets had human-like civilizations on them, routinely sent sending visitors to Earth. The man's name was Amrez. He told Marla that she was one of eight contactees selected throughout the world, part of the first wave of intense, thoroughly planned contact between the extraterrestrials and common humans. Throughout the 1970s, this number would grow in excess of 15,000. In the supermarket parking lot, Amrez got into Marla's car and started talking to her about a highly advanced scientific subject like genetics and astrophysics. In this discussion of astronomy, Amrez told Marla that there were 12, if not 9, planets in the solar system. He explained to her that this would be the first of many meetings and that he would be the first of many visitors. Before leaving Marla, Amrez gave her a homework assignment of sorts. She was to visit sites of religious and spiritual significance throughout Mexico to unlock her mind and to prepare herself to be on a more energetic spiritual level. These sites included not only important Catholic shrines, but secret places that were holy to modern indigenous people and those of pre-Hispanic civilizations. When Amrez exited Marla's car, she felt a bit overwhelmed, but went home and wrote down everything her contact had told her. It all filled several notebooks. According to the Mexican UFO press in the 1970s, Marla also met with three other beings by the names of Ramker, Katumi, and Kardim. She told of an encounter with one named Ramkar in great detail in an article for an obscure Mexican magazine called Otros Planetas, or Other Planets in English. 
Here she described her visitor Ramkar as looking very Eastern European, like someone from Poland or Russia. He had very pale skin, green eyes, a roundish face, blonde hair, and a lean muscular body, looking about 35 years old. He was wearing a one-piece bodysuit which he appeared outside her home. Again, this person spoke perfect Mexican Spanish. Ramkar wanted to impart to Marla medical knowledge and gave her some sort of device in the shape of a short metal rod. He told her that the best description he could give to her to fit this metallic stick is that it was a tool for healing. It could diagnose and treat any illness. Marla would keep this piece of technology until the late 1970s when she would give it to one of her followers who would eventually take it to the United States for study. By the mid-1970s, Marla had many hundreds of followers who were on board with her to help humanity get to its next level of consciousness. In the back pages of these pulp Mexican UFO and paranormal magazines, Marla sold cassette tapes and pamphlets to those who were interested in helping her grand mission. The cassettes and chapbooks instructed the prospective pupil in the techniques of automatic writing, of meditating, and channeling. Marla would also give workshops in private homes in some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Mexico City. Outside the small paranormal community, no one knew her except for her 1972 television interview. But within the community of UFO buffs and fringe researchers, Marla was a star. Over the course of the 1970s, Marla had many contacts, and the four main beings, Cardam, Ramkar, Katumi, and Amraz, were often accompanied by others. Marla claimed that these visitors were not, not necessarily all from off-world, but some were interdimensional beings. According to her many interviews, she never flew in a spacecraft and never went through an interdimensional portal. Through her hundreds of meetings, Marla relayed the messages of these visitors to her followers, the press, and anyone who would listen. The main message of Marla's contacts has to do with the need for humanity to better itself. The visitors were worried not only would humans destroy their own world, but they would spread the destruction to other parts of the galaxy. The off-world beings who spoke to Marla would hear that they had the experiences with races like humans of their own recent past and they were greatly harmed. They did not want to face the same threat from a future of human races, so they thought it prudent to intervene at this time. The contact phenomenon was to soften up humans and to elevate the consciousness of humanity away from things like war, poverty, and environmental degradation. Marla also maintained that Mexico was especially chosen as a site for initial contact because the country has a very long history of complex civilizations that are in touch with various supernatural forces and a very long history of experiencing higher levels of consciousnesses throughout its thousands of years. It was in Mexico's ancestral memory and in the fact that the very DNA of Mexicans was more plugged in or receptive to other realms of multidimensional realities that Mexico was one of the many first places chosen. Mexico is also a place with many interdimensional portals and thin spots with dimensions of realities can be somewhat porous. There were other contactees in Mexico in the 1970s who did not make themselves known publicly and did this work needed to be done, but in secret. Marla became the most famous of all these chosen and served as a repository of vast amounts of knowledge. In one article in a magazine from 1978, the author described a scene in which Marla attended a conference of University of Physicists and gave a presentation on quantum physics that was levels above what the ordinary woman could have learned on her own. The same thing happened when she spoke to doctors that she had learned from her contacts about what she called electromagnetic healing. The medical device given to Marla by Ramkar supposedly had several patents that were eventually developed from it in the medical industry. 
She gave this piece of advanced technology to one of her followers. This person eventually got a job with NASA, and that is how the device made it to the United States. After 1980, nothing more is mentioned about this short metal rod that had special medical powers after the United States government came into possession of it. Marla stopped giving interviews in the 1980s and made a few public appearances in that decade. Many Mexican podcasters and UFO bloggers have tried to get her to do interviews here in the internet age. But Marta is now in her late 80s and lives a private and quiet life in either Guadalajara or Mexico City. End of article. Forgotten UFO stories of the 1970s. Flying saucers, cylindrical objects, orbs. These are some of the shapes of mysterious flying crafts that have been spotted in Mexican skies for most of the 20th century up until the present day. With the advent of the camera phone and with technology readily accessible to Mexicans today, YouTube and other parts of the internet are flooded with countless videos of UFOs over Mexico. Before the built-in camera phone and even the older and rarer camcorder, people had a difficult time recording anomalies in the sky. In the 1970s, for example, a person seeing a UFO would have to consider very, be considered very lucky to have had a camera in hand and at the ready to document a sighting. As a consequence of little photographic evidence in existence from that time, all that has been passed down through the decades from the 70s are stories based on eyewitness testimonies, and some of the poorly researched are explained. An interesting wealth of information on the UFO phenomenon exists, and from that decade in Mexico, the few people know about it. Here are two stories of Mexican UFO encounters from the 1970s. The first sighting took place on the outskirts of the city of Taluco, located in the central Mexican state of Mexico. Four friends, young men in their late teens and early 20s, went for a leisurely walk through the streets in the early evening. The date was Sunday, March 25, 1978. At around 6 o'clock, they found themselves engulfed in a massive cloud of dust. This phenomenon was not localized. It was a large dust storm that descended upon the city from a vengeance much like hobobs in the Middle East and North Africa. The four friends wanted a better view of the storm, so they hopped in their car, a typical Mexican-made VW bug, and drove to an overlook in the Los Almas district. From Lomas Altus, the group had a great view of the show of dust descending upon Toluca. As they sat outside and watched to them, the clouds seemed more black than sandy brown, which indicated that it carried rain with it and was not merely a dust storm. As the skies got worse, the four friends retreated to the safety of the Volkswagen. Large drops pelted the windshield, lightning crashed out of the sky, and the wind blew with great ferocity. Dust and other larger pieces of the debris swirled around the tiny car. The four decided to hunker down and wait out into the storm at Lomas Altas. At least the radio in the car worked and they could listen to music despite the chaos around them. One of the friends suddenly noticed a bright red light in the rearview mirror of the car. They immediately thought the lights came from a police car, but couldn't believe that a police cruiser would be out at the remote overlook at the time of night and during a bad storm. The four noticed that the red object began rising, and at the same time the light started to move. The radio in the car went dead. The light hovered over the hills, and the friends sat transfixed in their car, just watching the light. The only witness to this event would go on the record with researchers, also the oldest of the four friends of the age 22. His name was Jose Brito. Right from the get-go, Brito told investigators that it was very difficult to get a really clear view of the object emanating the red light because of the storm. The object was also emitting a type of smoke that swirled around it and made it even harder to see. 
Nonetheless, Brito went on to describe what he and his friends saw the best he could. He said the object was about the size of a bus with a red chrome sphere on top. The sphere had a ring of small portals. The bluish light shone from these portals. While they appeared to be some sort of windows, they could not see any occupants of the craft peering through them. Brito also noticed that some seemed to have landing gear or legs sticking out of the bottom of the craft, although the object was not near the ground. Along with these legs, on the bottom of the craft there existed some sort of engine that spewed jets of fire and made a thunderous noise. From his testimony to researchers, Brito stated, It spun so quickly that we lost sight of the details. We couldn't see it if it had retracted its legs or closed its portals. All we could see was a source of light suspended in the air. When the object took off, the dust storm intensified, even sending sizable rocks flying in the direction of the little Volkswagen. The four friends sat in the car, terrified, hoping that they would not be hit with a larger piece of debris. When the object disappeared, the storm died down, and the raging winds were replaced by a gentle rain. Where the rain ceased, the young men got out of the car and walked over to the area behind the car where they originally saw the object. As they walked closer to the site, they noticed the ground getting warmer, and then they also noticed burn marks from the low brush and shrubs. Did anyone else see the strange object over Toluca? There were a few other witnesses in the city proper who described the craft as bright and colorful spinning top, but there were no photographs. Although moderately investigated, no one knows what the craft was or how it was related to what terrible dust storm that night in March of 1978. The second story hails from the Mexican state of Querétaro, around the small town of San Joaquin. An article written in the Diario de la Querétaro, dated May 7, 1975, told of how four objects were spotted over the town sometime between 9 o'clock and 10 p.m. on May 6th. Among the witnesses was Ricardo Smith, a local tax collector and district attorney who was quoted in the article. He said they saw four strange objects that flew at an altitude higher than that of the private planes. His wife had called to him the window to see these unidentified craft. She had seen the objects for longer than her husband and told reporters he had a chance to see the objects twice since they flew around the community a few times. They flew in from the east and returned in the same direction. She also said they looked like small saucers used in old scales or balances attached to chains used to weigh things. Another witness, town council member Manuel Martinez, said basically the same thing, that the objects looked like small pans. He also noted that they made a slight buzzing sound. Yet another witness, a woman named Guadalupe Saldivar, told reporters that at first I saw what lights that appeared to be stars, but as they drew closer and flew overhead, I saw they were circular objects like weighing platforms, with dangling wires gray in color. The next month, June of 1975, strange anomalies in the sky returned to the small town of San Joaquin. Witnesses reported seeing a massive object flying low and slowly over the town hall, almost clapping a radio tower. This object was similar to the one seen in the previous month, and it was disc-shaped, appearing like the saucers of an old-fashioned scale. This larger object had lights coming off the top of it that converged to the point which made the craft look even more like a balance of a scale suspended by chains. The bizarre craft had hundreds of witnesses. This sighting caught the attention of a famous paranormal researcher, Salvador Fraxerdo Chabadas, a Spanish-born former Jesuit who was expelled from the order in 1959 and devoted the rest of his life to exploring paranormal phenomenon. Frexito wrote over 30 books, most of them covering the complex subject of UFOs and how they related to religion and human history. While in Mexico, he founded an organization called the Mexican Institute of Paranormal Studies. Frexito mentioned the 1975 San Joaquin Cuadratoro UFO sightings in his 1984 book Defendamanos de los Dioses, 
which translates to English as defending themselves from or beware of the gods. He focused on eyewitness accounts of these incidents. Where he is, Here is an excerpt from the book. One day in 1975, a young man from a humble background told me how two months before at night he had witnessed a UFO flying very slowly and at a low altitude over his house located on the outskirts of town. Excited by what he had seen, he ran over to the UFO, following its trajectory into a deep gully outside the city not far from his home. When he reached the gully's edge, he saw large lens-shaped objects on the ground emitting a fantastic white light. Frightened by the sight, he crouched amid some shrubs. From his hiding place, he was able to see several midgets with objects resembling flashlights in their hands. These flashlights emitted thin, concentrated beams of light, and the midgets were having a good time hacking down plants with them, enthusiastically cutting one down after the other. After a while, my friend, who had remained concealed and motionless behind the shrubs, saw the object change color and moments later begin to ascend very slowly, balancing itself repeatedly some five meters above the ground until it shot off heavenward. While engaged in this back-and-forth motion, the object struck a large cactus and toppled it. Months later, when accompanied by a young man to the site, I asked him to show me where the cactus had been felled. We headed in that direction, and sure enough, there lay a large, half-desiccated cactus. In spite of the time that had gone by, we were able to see without any difficulty the large, rounded imprints of more than one landing on the gully floor. Later on, back at his home, the young man gave me fused rocks that he had collected from the landing marks that while they were still hot. He had placed them in a jar, and after a while, the inside of the jar had been covered in a yellowish dust that resembled sulfur. All these delta details are more or less common to many other UFO landings, but what was new to me here was the half-desiccated coyote I discovered not far from the landing site. What attracted my curiosity were certain strange characteristics that could not be made that could be made out along the animal's carcass. Strangest of all was the fact that the entire body had been wrung, much like a rag is wrung to extract water from it. Yet, in spite of this, its bones remained unbroken. Furthermore, it was also interesting to see that no ants or any insects whatsoever could be found beneath or around the carcass. While there was a good amount of time, the animal's flesh still stuck to the bones. It had dried up in an unusual manner without rotting and disintegrating as is commonly the case with animals that have died in a field. <coughs> An often overlooked decade, the 1970s has many UFO cases that are due for a second look by researchers today. Old newspapers and other archival sources may provide fertile territory for modern-day investigators willing to explore and learn from the past. End of article. The UFO incident at the Santa Lucia Air Force Base. The Santa Lucia Air Base, just north of Mexico City in the Mexican state of Mexico, is home to eight Air Force squadrons and a small residential colony of soldiers of the Mexican Army. The base opened in 1952 during the administration of President Miguel Aleman and has served as one of the major military bases serving central Mexico. 
Santa Lucia has the widest runway of any airport in Mexico and has received many different types of aircraft over the years. In May of 1971, the base had a most unusual vehicle appear in its skies and then nearly land, hovering just a few yards above the Earth for several minutes. Santa Lucia cases one of the most detailed and bizarre close encounters in the annals of Mexico's UFO lore are the world's UFO encounters. It was a warm night in the May in 1971. Teenager Dolores Martinez lived on base with her parents. Her father was an enlisted man in the Mexican Army. When Dolores couldn't sleep, she often opened her window and stared out at the stars. Sometime in the early morning, hours before dawn, she did what she normally did and opened her bedroom window. Dolores' gaze turned to a nearby field where she saw a cylinder-shaped object of a dull metallic color hovering over the ground about 20 or so feet above the field. A hatch opened from the underbelly of the ship, and from it emerged a round metal platform. Standing on the platform were two men dressed all in white, even down to their shoes. According to Dolores' testimony many years later, she said they looked like they were wearing what doctors would wear. These humanoids were, were pale-skinned and had light brown hair, looked very Caucasian to the young girl, but she got a better look at them as they approached her house. When the two noticed Dolores watching them, the girl reported that she heard a voice in her head say, Relax. We are peaceful. Nothing will happen to you. This made her feel at ease, almost to the point where she felt like she knew them. Dolores accepted their telepathic invitation to come outside and then walked with the two mysterious men to the craft until she was directly under it. The hatch opened again and this time a smaller and older man exited. Dolores described him as having closely cropped white beard and that he looked like a human of about 70 years old. He had a kind face and wore the same white uniform as the other two. Unlike the others, though, the older man spoke to Dolores, and his Spanish was perfect. He introduced himself as El Mayor, or in English, the Elder. He asked the teenage girl if she would like to be aboard the aircraft, and she said yes. Dolores descended through the hatch and into the main room of the ship, which seems similar to the bridge in the starships of the Star Trek universe. There were sparkling lights on the curved walls and ceiling, and in the center of the bridge was a round metal table and benches that were welded to the floor. The benches and table were surrounded by a metallic ledge. A few minutes after she boarded, the Elder asked Dolores if she would like to visit their planet if they promised to return her to Mexico. She agreed, at which point he gave her a white uniform to wear over her pajamas. The Elder taught the girl to grab onto the metallic ledge, and after she complied, he sat at the table and started pushing buttons. Dolores described the control panel as looking similar to the buttons on the surface of a microwave. The Elder gave instructions on other two beings without uttering a sound. He used a combination of telepathy and simple hand gestures. The room was silent, and even though Dolores was holding onto the ledge as instructed, she felt no movement. When she asked the Elder what was going on, he explained to her that they were already in outer space and they were flying across the galaxy at speeds far beyond what humans were capable of creating with their aircraft and rockets. Dolores asked if she could see what it looked like outside the ship, so the Elder pushed a button and a small window-like opening appeared. But there were no stars. The kind older men explained because of their velocity she was only able to see black. A few minutes after the window demonstration, the ship slowed down because it was approaching the alien homeworld. And this time again, Dolores could feel no motion in the ship, no deceleration at all. The Elder pointed to the window like opening and Dolores saw a small silver sphere come into view. The girl was told to brace herself for a landing, but she felt no shock or movement of any kind when the craft touched down on the alien planet's surface. 
The hatch of the ship opened and the four went into a small room to what would only be a decontamination process. The two taller aliens went first, followed by Dolores, accompanied by the Elder. They removed her white uniform and put her into a transparent pod. In the pod, she was showered with liquid and what she would later describe as a strong, cold wind. After the sterilization process, Dolores was given a new white tunic and led into a room with metallic ceiling and a dim light coming from the entire length of the floor. From this room, she walked through the long corridor that was full of people from this new world. They were hurrying about, carrying things, seemingly going about their everyday tasks in a very serious manner. Although Dolores was a stranger in this new world, no one paid any attention to her and went about their business instead. In this corridor, her small party was joined by what appeared to be several bodyguards and servants. In a later interview, Dolores later recalled that everyone appeared here to be the same age, somewhere in the early 20s, all except the elder. They were also very Caucasian in appearance, taller than the average Mexican with light brown or blonde hair and light-colored eyes. From the corridor, the elder took Dolores to the living area, explaining a little bit about alien society along the way. On their world, there was no such thing as marriage, and their people reproduced by way of artificial insemination. The society was extremely controlled and disease did not exist. When Dolores asked whether people of this world were immortal, the elder stated they did not live for a long time. Oh, they did live for a long time, but not forever. And when someone died, they would immediately be replaced by a new baby so that the world's population was forever the same. They took her to some sort of daycare center, which consisted of a large room full of children, with one woman managing things by pushing buttons on several consoles. The children were kept isolated while the adults lived six to a room. Dolores noted that with the exception of one of the children who smiled at her, everyone she came across was very serious and businesslike. The elder then took Dolores to a huge room full of lush vegetations topped by a glass dome. Many of the plants she recognized. He explained to her that all the flowers, trees, and shrubs in this dome greenhouse had come from Mexico. The older alien stated that this was their own planet once looked very much like, before they lost a protective layer of atmosphere and they were all forced to live underground. This is why Dolores saw no sun while she was walking through these buildings. They were all under the planet's surface. Dolores asked for some water and it was given to her after the elder explained that water was extremely rare on this planet. She was also offered food, colorful squares that looked like bonbons, but she refused. The elder reassured her that she could digest anything there because their physiology was similar to that of humans. There were very little differences between species, he explained. He also added that if humans ever needed their help, they were peaceful people and would come to Earth and assist. Speaking of Earth, it was at that time when Dolores asked where she was going to go home. The elder responded by asking her if she wanted to stay. He explained that humans from different parts of the earth had been living on this world for many years of their own free will. If she wanted to stay with him, his people would gladly accept her. The teenage girl thought about it for a few minutes and then declined. The elder smiled and escorted her back to the same corridor she initially passed through and led her back to the docking area where the spaceship was parked. Dolores was given a white tunic to wear again and she put it on before she boarded the craft. She was accompanied by the Elder and the two aliens she initially met when the craft first landed on Earth. Again, she was told to hold onto the ledge during the ship's takeoff, but she felt nothing and heard nothing, just motionless silence. The Elder manned the controls as he did before, and with a few moments, Dolores was back where she started. The craft's hatch opened up over the familiar 
filled adjacent to the Santa Lucia base her home. It was not yet dawn and they had not been gone for very long. The elder had some final words of advice for the young girl. Tell no one of your encounter. He reasoned that no one would believe her anyway, so it would be best to keep it all a secret. Dolores said goodbye and walked to her house. By that time, she got to her front door, turned around, the spacecraft and the elder were gone. The testimony of Dolores Martinez would appear nine years after the incident in a book published by Mexican UFO researcher Luis Ramirez Reyes titled Acoso Extraterrestre, Hablan Las Victimas. This translates into English as extraterrestrial harassment, the victims speak. Since this account appeared, Dolores' testimony has been ridiculed, examined, discounted, and explored in great detail. Many serious UFO investigators dismissed the incident as fake, alleging that the story was either made up by Dolores or fabricated by the author to sell more copies of his book. Since the publication of the book and subsequent interviews, no one has seemed to corroborate her testimony. No one at the base has any record of strange craft being spotted in the skies from 1971, although witnesses and records may be difficult to come by decades after the fact. Those who are not so dismissive and look to some of the details of the story are inclined to believe that something strange or even otherworldly happened to the teenager, Dolores Martinez. Some think she never went into outer space and that she was taken aboard some sort of experimental craft manufactured by Americans and possibly the Soviets. The people she described could have been her neighbors to the north or individuals from eastern bloc countries. During her testimony, Dolores insists she never felt that she was moving while she was on board the supposed interstellar craft. This has led people to believe that perhaps she never traveled outside Earth's atmosphere and this supposed spaceship was a portal to another dimension and took her somewhere beneath the Earth, peopled by scientists from the main Cold War powers. Dolores Martinez lived to regret not heeding the words of the Elder and was sorry she ever gave an interview to Ramirez for his book. She hasn't spoken to anyone about her encounter since the early 1980s. Without further details of corroborating testimonies, what happened outside Santa Lucia Base in May of 1979 may forever remain a mystery. End of article.